I run a business that owns 500 apartments, and you know, depending on uh, where interest rates are today, maybe we own a couple hundred million dollars worth of real estate. Uh, the guy who I'm about to uh, welcome out onto the stage is operating on a completely different level. And I invited him here, uh, in a sense, today to show all of us, me and also uh, all of you, what it's like. Like, what are we all building? And, and eventually, if things go incredibly well, what does it look like? Uh, so with that, uh, let me welcome to the stage uh, Matthew Gottesteiner. Nice to see everybody. All right. So um, uh, Matthew runs an enormous, enormous business. And so maybe we could start uh, uh, our conversation today with you telling us a bit about Northland. Sure. Everyone can hear me okay? Yeah. Well, thank you guys for coming. It's, it's humbling to have a chance to speak with everybody and, and talk about which lessons can be kind of transferable, what we're all doing out there. I, I run a Boston-based apartment owner-operator. We develop a little, not particularly well yet, but most of our business is buying, renovating, owning, operating apartments. Uh, while we're based in Boston, most of what we own is across the Sun Belt and the Smile States. We have a, about 100 communities, about 26,000 doors. Uh, the team in, in Boston, which I joined in 2015, um, has grown from about 45 to 130 over this past decade or so, and we have about 600 uh, property management running our own sites. We don't do third-party management, and uh, in our world of kind of large private owner-operators of apartments, uh, we have a couple of things that make us unique that are worth mentioning, because I, I hope it might build a bridge to smaller but very similar organizations that a lot of you guys are building and running. Um, we're one of the last big apartment owner-operators that does not yet have any institutional capital. So no pension funds, big private equity funds. We raise closed-end discretionary funds from families, individuals, and family offices, which is rare at our size. I think the other thing that's different is uh, in our history, our average hold period of investment's been about 14 years, and our funds are incredibly long both some legacy ones that we've restructured we'll talk about and our new fund, you know, 12 to 14 year life. So for a lot of you guys that are like, I just want to buy great real estate and hold and compound, uh, and then you look at these big private equity funds that own for three years, we're a lot closer than you might seem. Um, and then the last thing I'd say is, is we've gotten big, but from the 90s, when this firm started in 91, to the 2000s, to then my own leadership, we're pretty damn entrepreneurial and scrappy. There's a certain look about my competitors, and I rarely, if ever, can pull off that look. Um, so that, that's Northland in a nutshell. Fantastic. So, and you guys all caught that, 26,000 apartments that are owner-managed. <laughs> um, so I want to start, um, I want to start by, by talking about your experience of coming into this business. Now, uh, it wasn't quite as large when you came into it as it is today, but it was, it was, a, it was a serious enterprise. Yeah. And I, wanted, I want you maybe to briefly touch on your experience prior to coming into Northland, and then let's talk about what it was like for you to come into this, yeah, this operation. absolutely. Um, I didn't start in this. I, I think for a little bit of history, uh, in the early 90s, three ex-corporate lawyers, one of which was my father, I think all of them, one more all-nighter away from killing themselves, were reading about the SNL crisis. And they had the brazen confidence and optimism that I think many in this room have too. 
They were going to be fabulously rich. They were never going to work for someone else. That was like a defining goal, right? And they were going to change the game, play by their own set of rules. And they had about 37 grand of life savings between the three of them. <laughs> and, uh, and launched what is now Northland, right? I'll talk a little bit about kind of the history of Northland maybe in a second, but my own history is by the late 90s, I became aware that my father was doing something that seemed incredibly cool. He had no boss. It was exciting and dynamic. It was stressful. Uh, I, I briefly heard from friends that they would kind of marvel at his risk appetite, which was horrifying, right? I, I, we'll talk a little, you know, it, one of the most foundational startup loans for Northland was the decision that the statutory interest rate on not paying income taxes back then was 12%. So just don't pay. <laughs> and uh, the sheriff knocked on the door. Um, and he says, as long as your IRR is 20 and, and the statutory interest is 12. Um, and, and I mean this in all seriousness, it definitely cost him a marriage and my own, my own parents who split up, but, but for me, I was marveled at a father that was brilliant, that was tenacious, the company that was growing, and at 17, I was like, great, I don't need to do anything, I'll drop out, this is it, and got a swift and just utterly demoralizing no, <laughs> and an emphatic one, not no, not, not now, not now or never, and I think what I heard at 17 was, uh, you don't want to work for me, I'm brutal, this is not a family business, something I think we both agree now is, is, is also the case, um, and in a very Jewish way or a cultural way that may resonate with other communities and immigrant groups, you better do something a hell of a lot better than buying fucking apartments, right? Like, what is the point of all this if you're not going to do something impressive? Um, and I started my career uh, at, on Wall Street trading derivatives during the financial crisis and eventually working in private equity groups and in 2015 was looking for attribution, right? Not sitting and waiting for a bonus and hoping somebody would pay you what you thought you were worth and trying to build something. But I'm not, unlike many people in the room, I loved working in a big company. I loved having a boss who terrorized me and valorized me at the same time. I loved that community and network. And uh, at that time, Northland was going through a transition. My, my father had long since stepped back and, and moved to a place that is so associated with joy and success, you only need to say the two words, Santa Barbara. Um, <laughs> and, and really hadn't been to the you know, kind of office and part of the firm. The original partners were similarly situated, and they had hired for a decade a, a bulldog, a wartime consigliere, their outside lawyer that they trusted to get them through the financial crisis. But by 15, had decided, unbeknownst to me, to make a change. I had left Goldman, I had taken a job in Boston, I moved my family, we were about to have our first kid, my wife had moved to a different law school and, and started hiring for the new job, which was gonna be doing real estate private equity, and convinced a hedge fund in Boston to give me a seat and some capital. And, and he emailed Ed and the other partners with kind of a joke, you know, I know we've never talked about this before, but would you ever come in and have a conversation about joining Northland? We had talked about it. <laughs> right? it, I, it was brutal. I think it was an incredibly tough call. Um, but very early on, I, I just, it was an opportunity. We were a platform then that had a bunch of units, still 15,000, 16,000, um, but it was scrappy to the core. There was still kind of a, we just survived 08 mentality, even in 2015. Right? Everybody had three jobs. There was 40 people in corporate on 16,000 units. Right? We didn't have any level of financial reporting. Um, investor relations was paying distributions <laughs> as a policy. 
like the, the phone, phone number, calls. Northland IR phone number was not a monitored phone number. <laughs> it was a voicemail with no response or any check. That, uh, at scale, we had a billion and a half of assets. Um, and I spent four or five months getting to know my main partner, our COO, Suzanne, and hearing about all the skeletons in the closet. Why was the old CEO given the boot? What was, where were we going? What were our problems? Uh, and I felt like I had a good arm around what I, what I thought was just such an incredible shot to cut the line. That's what it was for me, right? To get a shot, to get more responsibility and discretion that I felt like I could rise to that I didn't yet deserve. And I think, you know, you've talked about this on Twitter and, and I just want to say for the record, you know, many of us are building these businesses in hopes that someday maybe if we're lucky, uh, one or more of our children would get involved in them. And, and so, so part of the attraction for me about having Matthew come here and talk to us is like, this is what this looks like potentially if things go really well. Yeah. I, want, I want to talk, um, we talked about this uh, during our call a, a month ago or whatever. Um, I want to talk to you specifically about the process of rebuilding the acquisitions team there because I think, mm -hmm. it's, I think it's really fascinating for the people who are, uh, who are probably in the same boat right now. Yeah, I mean, we had, so I had huge advantages. This was a platform that existed. We had boots on the ground. We had a track record. We had a scale that investors would be like, oh, 15,000 units, yeah, I'll take a meeting. But I had a couple problems. The acquisition team had walked out the door with the prior leader, so it was zero. It wasn't a single team member. Um, and the last two funds that we had raised, 99% of the dollars, external money, had been raised by the guy that wasn't there anymore. Um, I did, I think everyone should be different, but I'll make my case. And it was influenced by my time in New York. Uh, young, inexperienced, impressionable, and hungry was the, the sole strategy. So our, our acquisition team today is seven, um, all of which were hired as interns or first year out of school. We've yet to have a departure, so we kind of hired them between 15 and 17. Um, and I did for a couple of reasons. I think we are all somewhat in the room with the same conception of real estate and that it's not rocket science. It's one of the advantages, you know, and, and uh, I couldn't agree with that more. Um, I also think there's this startup mentality, and you can even be contrived about it, almost like a cult-like attachment that comes from being 21, never having another job. This is the only world you know, right? The first person to put you on a plane for work, the first person to put you in an investment committee meeting to get a deal done. And, uh, I had spent my entire 20s just not wanting to wait in line, just like raging at bosses and other people I worked with, like, give me a shot. So that's how we built it. it was a, there was a school in, in, in Boston called Northeastern. They had a co-op program that's like a six-month full-time internship. And I was like, that's an unbelievable, you know, you pay back then $17 an hour. And I was like, this is a six-month interview for a job. So we built the team out of that community, um, and it's gone well. I also want to... Um to touch on that, the, the, the capital situation too. You said that, that, that you had you deployed all the, or the previous administration, let's call it, had deployed all yeah. the capital raised. And so you've got, you're coming into this platform, you're rebuilding the acquisition team, but you also don't have any money to put out. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and, and this is not a situation where you're, you can start out by raising two million bucks and doing a little eight great point. or something like this. You gotta do something at scale. So uh, what'd you do? It's a good question. So I, I wanna honor, like, again, I, I had the platform. Or it was much easier to raise money. There's track record and deals behind it. But I, I felt like in that four months of briefing before I started, I had been told everything except for that fact. 
And I honestly, my Small father, detail. Right, one little detail. And my father was one of the original partners and, and uh, all those guys that were kind of stepped back from the business decades ago remain some of my biggest LPs. That certainly helps you start on first base. Northland's defined at our size from this ambitious idea in 91 that is still true today. That any deal or any fund we ever do a raise will contribute 20% or more of the money. Always and forever. The forever part was not written by me. <laughs> so we can come back to that. But that was the mission statement. Um, and so it helped. So I had an unbelievable co-invest. I had a platform behind me. But it wasn't easy. I mean, I, my predecessor was a 60-year-old managing principal of one of the biggest law firms in America, Minslavin. That's what he was when he joined Northland. He raised money from the Harvard Club, right, from being on the trustee of prep schools and being super rich and old, right? Uh, I didn't have that. So, uh, you know, I would say, I don't know how much advice I can say programmatically, but I, I, I spent a lot of time trying to be somebody I wasn't to my investor audience. I'd be like, oh, how did somebody else raise money? Let me be like them. Right? They were smooth, or they had these cool events and dinners, or they brought people. I'm like an unrepentant nerd, right? And overwhelming and enthusiastic and exhausting. And eventually, after six months of failing, I kind of leaned into who I was and went back to the desk, the people at Goldman that I used to buy Shake Shack lunch or do their Shake Shack orders for. And you know, we had a million dollar minimum then for new checks. And if it helps you guys, minimums are, are good because when you accept half of it, that's your actual minimum. And it really is a phenomenal strategy. And uh, I couldn't recommend it enough. So my first fund, it, it took a year and a half to raise. Um, it was anchored by 14 million of our own commitment. And we used that royal we. At that time, I was less than two of that 14. And luckily, it was three or four years before investors started saying, stop saying we because those guys seem like they live in Santa Barbara. <laughs> what is your position? And I just started pitching a way that resonated. I want it more than other people. I have a combination of platform and, and a ridiculous amount of appetite. We're not rocket science. I, one advice that I'd been given early on that I just ignored for a year until I finally respected, nobody wants differentiated strategy. All of us in our head must be thinking, why would this guy give me money? There's 20 people just like me. Almost never, in my experience, is that what the LP is thinking. They're thinking, is that person an expert at the thing I'm giving them money to do? Are they aligned? Do they know how to do it? Will they act with integrity? Can they actually execute? So I just simpled up the pitch. We buy these deals. This is our strike zone. This is what it looks like. This is why it makes sense. And that resulted in an exhausting 18-month, ultimately about 55 million of external capital. It's about 100 investors, and made a ton of mistakes along the way. But um, it was meaningful. You know, I'll also share for all you guys, uh, one pitch I did, because it was true, I couldn't help but say it, and I think for you guys that anyone hits that leap step, we used to syndicate, now it's a fund. It used to be small, now it's big. I started telling people the truth. This is my first fund. There is only two choices. It is either successful or it's my last. Right? And it really helped raise money. It raised the stakes to the audience 
of how much I wanted it and needed it to work. I absolutely love that. I want to come back to talking about um, your decision to continue with raising discretionary funds, because I think that that plays into your, what I think is, a, where you are, one of the ways that you are differentiated is you do have a view about how this business can be done that's sort of different from uh, maybe the kind of deal-by-deal -deal syndication yeah. model that many of us are familiar with. But I want to, before we kind of get to that point, I want to talk about what your experience was like um, the uh, during the during that kind of COVID, the pre-COVID and COVID period, uh, how you dealt with that, how you thought about opportunities in a world where first things got really scary, then they got yeah. really good, now maybe they're getting really scary again. So I want I want you to walk us through what you were dealing with and and what you did. That's a good question. Yeah, I, I you know I'll be honest. I think the easy part, the first three years at Northland, I wasn't the CEO of the firm. I ran the investment platform. So I bought deals, raised money and bought deals. That's what I knew. And I had been elevated uh, just coincidentally in February of 2020. Um, <laughs> Whoops. And then went on my first vacation. I have a five and seven year old at home. And went on my first vacation without my children um, to somewhere beautiful in the Caribbean on, on March 10th of 2020. Um, with a beautiful new deal in Sarasota, all tied up, ready to go. No debt locked, middle of diligence. And I just gotten off the buyer's interview and said, Northland always closes. <laughs> we never retrade. <laughs> hell, I think I said something like hell could freeze over. <laughs> right? I didn't say a global pandemic could strike the world, <laughs> thank God. Um, and I spent those first three or four weeks doing what I knew best before realizing it was a total waste of time. I was like, great, let's run risk shocks. I'm gonna stay up all night. What happens if rates go to zero? What happens if revenue goes down 10%? How, what does it mean if we cut divs? How much can I slash capital? How about the management company? I'm never gonna raise a fund again. I mean, the world's over. So do I have to do layoffs? And I spent a solid four weeks, and maybe some of it was actually useful. Mostly it was just therapeutic as a stress management. And I realized, fortunately I have a partner who's a brilliant operator, and it was about our people and our sites. We had 20,000 scared, residents. We had 600 terrified employees that we said, it's in person always and forever. Right? I don't know about you guys, but I've heard some companies, we, we were not able to achieve a leap step and make nearly any property management remote. We were not able to. Our community managers got, all of them had laptops and cell phones and they could do a little work at home. It was in the office every single day. Like, what does it mean to be a frontline worker? How do you do accommodations? And it helped a little bit that I had a one and three-year-old or two and, four, two and four, my childcare quit, its replacement quit, my wife works more than I do. So like, there was a little bit of humanity where I recognized what was going on, but the biggest crisis we faced was 150 employees that said they couldn't come to work because they had no childcare. That was the single biggest issue we faced. What did you do? We started doing kind of any type of makeshift solution almost person by person. And it was one of those old, like, just throw out the book. Like, I, there's some people here in the audience that are much better than I about uh, delegation. That's not a strength I have yet. Um, or high-level systems thinking. I didn't do that. I spent 90 hours a week on a case-by-case -case basis. Hiring babysitters Just for one after another. <laughs> Can you share? Should you move in? You know, one thing that, I'll make a small little pitch yeah. for a differentiator of Northland. In the 90s and 2000s, a lot of apartment operators offered discounts to their property management staff to live on site as people use other people's money and the business gets more efficient, a lot of that is pared down, right? Northland has stood apart, we've increased it. So if you're a community manager, which is like the boss of a property or the lead maintenance tech uh, at any Northland site, the rental discount's 
up to a three-bedroom, tax-free. We don't film this, right? No, um, there's definitely IRS guidelines right, that support that it's not, that it's not CIFL, taxable income. Um, that's unbelievable. That's like a $40,000 income. And for all other employees, we increase the discount from 10 to 20 down to 25%. So we have 260 team members that call Northland communities home. They work better. They're more accountable to their community. And it made COVID easier because they live there. A lot of it was reinventing protocol. We're from Boston, but Florida's been our biggest market for the last 20 years. I should have said earlier, uh, uh, we own in a lot of markets, but Austin, Florida uh, have probably been the biggest for the last 30 years. And under my leadership, we've grown a lot in maybe more surprising markets. Big buyer in New Mexico, some more conventional ones like Charlotte, Atlanta, and Charleston, but also Macon and Ocala and Rochester, Minnesota, and Madison, Wisconsin. So we can talk about that too, yeah. um, kind of buying where others won't. But for the pandemic, um, the easy part for me was making contrarian long-term bets. So we bought a bunch of deals in 2020. Yeah, let's, so, okay, so yeah. you've got this operational nightmare going on, which you sort of triage to the extent that you can. Yep. But meanwhile, you're looking at this as a buying opportunity. Yeah. So uh, walk us through, how did you start to get comfortable buying again, and what did you choose and prioritize? So the, the nice part is, uh, why, why do you buy a deal, right? First, you need the money. So like, either if you're cynical, can I raise it or do I already have it? Right? Does it hit the returns? And then almost all of those first six months of the pandemic, the things that would have prevented you from buying were these incredible existential tail risks. Like, will America exist? <laughs> like, I, you know what I mean? Will this become a post-apocalyptic HBO show? Um, but what I saw was cheap debt, shelter was never more important, and some people had to sell, and we buy deals, borrow fixed rate debt, and produce cash flow. So that was actually easy. Like right now is harder, and we'll touch on that later, yeah. right? You know what I mean? But so buying deals really from a comfort level, um, we made a couple of mistakes so far. I, I think they may pay out, but uh, uh, city deals, urban deals have really gotten hit in the last three years, during COVID and the years afterwards. Because you guys were historically a kind of a suburban yep. garden. When style. I joined, we owned uh, uh, everything but one deal was suburban garden. Average age was kind of early 80s. And we bought towers in Atlanta, Orlando, Tampa, Denver, and then L.A., um, on this case of the enduring appeal of cities. It's where deals were on sale. Um, and by 21, I, I think it was incredibly you know, confusing to see just an unbelievable, unrelenting wave of demand at apartments. Right? I, I was uh, slow to cut. I'll, you know, a couple mistakes I made was suddenly the things that you let run on autopilot, you now micromanage because you're in a crisis. Some of that was meaningful, personnel and, and operations. Some of it was really dumb, like daily pricing. Right, the model said demand's down, pre-lease is low, this is spring, summer of 2020, cut rate. And I, feeling like I've cracked it like a Harvard Business School club, was like, if you're crazy enough to shop a community in June of 2020, your purchase intent is massive. You'll take any price. <laughs> I was wrong. Right, we, we cut too slow. And I think I, I caught it by just being a certain amount of humble. The, the REITs report every quarter, there's earning calls. You just read it, they were slashing rents by 10%. They went to no increased renewals. I was like, what do you mean? Demand's inelastic. Who would move? We've never spent more money on our communities, on cleaning, security, safety. We should get a 5% renewal. So I blew those first six months. I think what we did well in 21, that REITs were more cautious, was learning from the mistake. So we just, we let the model run. Our renewals were, you know, 12 to 25%. 
throughout 21 and 22. We followed the market, kind of enjoyed that swing up. Sur suburbs ruled, Florida ruled, um, and began to spend a lot of money and capital on the assets. We felt like we were getting paid because by because 20... Because the demand started to come back. And the problem was by 21, we had probably the trickiest moment. Many of you guys faced it too. Would you just swallow and accept that the pricing was the new normal? Even, you know, would you say, hey, I'm smarter than everyone else? We shouldn't buy any of these deals, right? These deals are, are disgustingly priced. Even though you're building a platform, you're not just an investor. Right? You don't do anything, you don't grow. And this is at the point that now we're talking about 21 and we're... Yes. And, and now just... We all remember it. At least in the apartment world, you're looking at three and a half caps yep. or something like that. Yeah. And you and you have to obviously. But you're seeing extremely strong rental demand. Mm -hmm. Right. It's, it's come back, but the but the, the the asset prices are nosebleed levels. What do you do? It was it was tough. I mean, I, so first thing we did was we sold a ton. So we we didn't touch on it today, but uh, uh, one of the biggest things that we believe in is that there's an actual long-term value to both duration and discretion. Discretion is pursuing a fund model, not asking permission to buy a deal, and making the compromises necessary. It's not like I'm up here being like, oh, it must be nice for Matthew to say he has a fund. If I could have one, I would have one too. We make compromises to have a fund. I would argue like our fees are lower than every single one in the room. Our economics are worse. Our, our promote and carry is subordinated and crossed across deals because we think it's worth it. On duration, um, it allowed us to sell assets without liquidating funds. So you could 1031 exchange within a fund. And I had all these legacy assets that I had started selling in 16 to trade up into quality because they were getting old, you know, physical obsolescence, whether it's you know, HVAC and mechanical or if it's just eight foot ceilings or the market. And in 21, there was like everything compressed to the Compressor. same multiple. It was the same thing, same cap rate. So some of you guys saw that, but like, you know, we sold a $250 million deal in Connecticut. There was, in, sorry, not the right part of Connecticut, in suburban <laughs> Hartford, right? Uh, there was no bid. It wasn't like that went, somebody said to me, oh, so did it go from a five cap to a four cap? It went from a no cap to a four cap, <laughs> right? There was no bid, right? We sold a monster deal in Tucson that we've loved forever one of my father's first acquisitions, where he left me as a kid growing up in Boston to go live there and manage. And uh, to find someone to spend $200 million on a 45-year-old property in Tucson was a moment in time. So that was easy. Sell everything old, we traded in, and uh, I think one of the mistakes I made and I continue to, I don't know if people have this impulse, I'm a deal guy by nature, the incremental cap rate, the incremental discount is so appealing to me. Everybody else is buying a 5.2, I'm getting a 5.5. But we take risk to get that incremental cap rate, and oftentimes the right play is to buy market or lower than market cap rates for the best deal in the best location. Yeah, let's talk about that risk while we're on the, while yeah. we're on the, on the topic. Like, wh what, wh let's talk, and it, it's easy enough to run a model and you can get someone to do that, um, and hopefully the inputs are reasonable. Let's talk about some of those uh, qualitative factors. Like what, what brings yeah. the risk in or, or, or mitigates so it? So you might not agree, and I think everybody's different. So we're, we're a big uh, garden apartment shop, so you'd probably think that we're like a value-add shop. right? When I joined, we've been around for 24 years and had renovated 700 apartments in those 24 years. Wow. 700 apartments in 24 years. That year, my competitor, Cortland, who had the same unit count I did, did 4,000 units. Right? So we were not. We didn't have the competency. We were managers. But mostly we rode a great wave of rates, being a really good manager and buying well. So I'm of the mind that uh, 
value add and, and opportunities that you do to pursue incremental returns are risk additive. Taking units offline and renovating them has risk. Buying a broken condo and putting it back together has risk. So in my opinion, the best way to quantify qualitative risk factors is just say, well, what does it look like if it goes wrong? If you buy a down the fairway deal, 10 years old, fully stabilized, you know, pick a different sector, I don't, you know, industrial. I don't know how many industrial people are in the room, but I think a lot. And I've always heard the same pitch for the last five years, buy deals with leases turning that are way below market, right? Let me be clear, the risk is that it's empty when the leases turn, <laughs> right? The other option is buying a deal that has a Walt of 11 and great tenants and is in place. So you shock it, right? What's the odds of occupancy going to 50% if it's 100 right now and has 10 years on the lease? A lot less than if all of the leases expire. So for us, what we'll do, we bought broken condo deals, we'll buy deep value add, uh, assets that were empty and, and you know, failed reposition. Um, we'll say, what does it look like if it goes wrong? And are, is the base level return incrementally higher enough to justify the downside? That's a big one. Right, we looked at a deal that we bought, in the end, a, a big broken condo in Orlando, a downtown tower, had retail, it needed 20 million of capital on a $60 million property, and we needed to buy back 50 of the 313 units. If we couldn't buy back the units, and if the capital didn't yield like we thought, it was a year five realized four return on cost, and a 10-year levered five. Right? If we hit, it was a 15, and, and we'd 4x our money. I could have bought another deal at the time, but the best I could find was a 10 and a 2x. That was enough. The incremental return felt like enough. I would also say something that I was bad at, but now do a lot more. It's a luxury, and it's one that you have to be careful that your LPs don't feel as misaligned. You want to take on the right risks so you build the competencies. Like we renovated a lot of units so that we could be good at renovating units. We bought broken condo deals so we could be the best at putting back together broken condos. So if you think about Part of what you guys are doing is balancing this tension between being an investor and building a platform. My advice would be to start by honoring that they are different, occasionally if not often in tension, and need to be independently and, and collectively reconciled. They're not the same thing. Somebody said to me, you know, if I'm a great investor, I'll build a great platform. Not my take. So for me to build a platform, the best thing I could do is do as many deep value add deals as possible. So when that's the right thing, I can say to some equity, look at me, I've done it 25 times. On the other hand, as an investor, just buy that deal down the fairway with a little less return and far less risk. So that's something I spent a lot of time thinking about. And, and you know, it culminates in a good example. We sold those two deals, uh, Suburban Hartford, Tertiary Tucson, 30 and 45 years old, some 25 year holds. And I looked around the world in 2022 and I felt like the worst pricing was Sunbelt Suburbs. You know, garden deals at 400 a door, above replacement even and then, sub four caps, rates were already moving by then. And most important to me is, everyone talks about cap rate, I feel like rent levels matter, pretty obsessed, you'll see me post online, with the divergence in rent levels across markets. And these rents were crazy. Our rents in, in 30 year old product in suburban Tampa are two, 250 a foot right now. My net effective rents on the prettiest physical asset in apartments in America, which is in downtown LA, if you want a tour, are 325 a foot. That's, That's a crazy. crazy, crazy story. So we chose to buy Contrarian. I don't know if it's right. We bought for basis, um, but at least we quantified and knew the bet we're making. 
Right? I think one of the hardest parts to, to kind of end that story, we used that money, pulled it together, and bought a distressed tower here in LA. The hardest part for me was it's one of the only assets we don't manage. I, didn't, I thought it'd be kind of the height of hubris. So it's an interesting moment where you say, well, what was the special sauce that made you succeed? So wait, hang on, you're, you're not applying it in this case? <laughs> but, but I think that that is in, in Northland's DNA. Right, right now, uh, even with cap rates going up, I would say the biggest risk not being priced in the apartment market is relative rent levels. Is just how far rents can come down in B, suburban, tertiary, sunbelt markets. Right? And, and we hope it doesn't happen, but it's on my mind. Uh, I'm going to be very curious to follow up on this conversation yeah. next year. We, For better or worse, yes. I'll, I'll post it online. <laughs> you guys can see. I wanna, we have just a couple of minutes left, and I wanted to, um, to, to give you some time to go back to your concept of um, discretion and duration. Because as I said before, it's, it, it is truly a differentiated way of thinking about it. And I, wanna, I want you to also, um, I want you to talk about um, the, the, the economic arrangements, yep. uh, the, the catch up in particular. Yeah. yeah, it's a great point. So, and again, like the last time I'll do this caveat, if you're in the room being like, what does this have to do with me? In 92, the founding principles of Northland with 35 grand in savings and absolutely no experience was we'll do 20% or more of the equity in every deals, we'll never sell, and we'll manage everything ourselves. So I, I would encourage that level of willing it into existence. Obviously, some of the choices were easier for me, but they were still the same. Uh, uh, let me say one at the start. I think 2021 in the last few years really warped people's thinkings, and like the best part about what's happening now is this reminder of what this thing that we do is all about, which was slow, steady, compounded, tax-efficient wealth creation. I'll meet all these people and say, why do you work in real estate? They're like, I just think it's the best way to get slow, compounded, tax-efficient returns. <laughs> oh, cool. What, you know, so what do you do? You know, I, <laughs> I, uh, I syndicate money with a 2% acquisition fee, and I renovate the units with vinyl plank, and then I sell it 18 months later. <laughs> do you 1031? No. Um, I don't get it. Which one is it? So, I, I, so let me start with, with that. Maybe there was, it felt like three years ago, there was just a bunch of 40-year-olds, 25 to 45-year-olds that had just made a billion dollars ripping and running on 10,000 units. Most of them are in active default and are seeing their platforms implode because the cost of that scale and that violation of the core tenets of why we do real estate investing was incredible risk. Right? In case nobody's in the apartment world, I'll just make clear, in our single-family home mortgages, you can have your cake and eat it too. We get fixed-rate debt. You can't sell five years into a 10-year loan. The prepayment's prohibitive. Right? So I think my case is be true to what makes this space compelling, even in, a, in an environment of higher or flat rates. Buy deals that you think can compound, borrow accordingly, structure your funds accordingly. So for us, what we did was we, we said, you know, we own seven billion of assets. My competitors are raising a billion-dollar funds. Right? I still raise money one, two million dollar checks at a time from individuals and families. My last fund is a 14-year fund. There's no liquidity rights. And we have a habit, as we've done three times, at the end of a fund's life, of putting it to an LP vote to extend the fund even longer. Right? It's a 51% majority win, but we own 20, 25% of the equity. <laughs> um, but I say to LPs, it takes us nine years of net of fees to make back the equity we invested in this fund. That's our payback. So nine years, and it doesn't even include the fact that there's costs to your fees. 
the alignment resonates. And I think right now is the right moment to make sure you're raising the right capital. We have no idea. If you're making a rate reversion bet, then make the bet, borrow floating rate debt, buy deals that don't have a lot of volatility in their NOI. You can buy a six cap or anything probably all around the country next year and hope that rates go to zero. I think that's a terrifying thing to do. If not, make sure your money is signed up for what you want it to be. And try to convince them that you're aligned. So for me, I can say to an LP, we've been around 30 years. We've sent out 700, 650 million of distributions, life to date. We've paid out about 15 million of carry or promote, which is a staggering kind of variance. There's nothing my fund can do that would let promote realize a dollar in its first decade. We're all doing this to get rich slowly, tax efficiently, and over time. So make that your structure. And, and for, I, I think there's a question of subsistence. People said, you can't eat that, right? No doubt. But I joined a firm with a huge co-invest and found out just how little you can live on for five years to invest in your funds. You know what helps to eat? LP yield from performing deals. And I think if you know about real estate professional designation, the whole setup tells us to be investors. I never understood GPs that don't co-invest. It wipes out your taxes. So I think going back to basics is where I would recommend. And when you sit with an, an LP and you're raising money in this tough moment, you can't even promise them more cash flow. Right? Risk-free is 5%. And I don't know about you guys, my cash on cash is the worst it's been in a decade. But we think these are great deals. They, we think they do well if things stay like this and they crush it if rates revert. We think that inflation's been shown to be a demand side driver for all of our businesses. And we don't have to have that debate anymore, right? If you have high inflation, will rents go up? We know that's true now. So you have a setup moment, and I think you say to you know, your investors, I want to be shoulder to shoulder with you. Look at my structure and how it reflects it. To the, to the last point, I will say we have one key term that I wouldn't get from the institutional world and, and is the single most important. Our fund structure is no acquisition fees or load fees. We charge 1.5% on contributed capital a year. So if you give a million dollars, it's 15 grand. It never changes over a 10 or 20 year fund. We have no other fees, except we have a 20% promote, not 30, 40, 50. It's subordinated by an 8% pref and a return of capital, but it has a catch up. And that may seem like a wonky, like it's a weird thing to end our talk on, but let me make it simple. If an LP says, what's your piece? I answer them very simply. 20% of the profits. In 98% of outcomes, if I do mediocre or better, my catch-up will run, and 20, 30, 10 years from now, whatever the total return of the fund was, 20% of the profits will be ours. Suddenly, time doesn't work against you. An IRR hurdle means time is costing you carry every year. The catch-up provision means that you get your piece no matter how long it takes. And investors will give it to you, no doubt, as long as you're aligned on the front end. So I think there's no more powerful term. If you look at the wealth creation of Northland, it's the catch-up provision. If any of you guys are like, I don't really get it, I'm around. I clearly feel passionate about it. Um, and uh, you know, I, I think the last thing that, that kind of comes to mind on the, the moment we're in, right, the, this kind of difficult moment of right now is the need for humility. I've been surprised, in, in Wall Street, everyone was so terrified that someone around the corner had a better idea or better information. And so we all spent our time learning from each other. 
There's something a little weird, and this community is the counterpoint about real estate and investing, where there's like this hubris of like, the big guys are playing by a different set of rules. They're cheating. They're not relevant to me. Some of the best returning, gross returning deals I've ever seen were bought by Cortland in the last 10 years. Huge behemoth that makes money even if they lose. So I'd recommend asking who's buying in my market, what are they doing, and are they smarter than me? I started buying in markets. One of the biggest bets we made, about 350 million of real estate in New Mexico, was literally because I have three competitors I think are better than me, and one of them bought a deal there. Saw it on CoStar. <laughs> we then bought every deal, mostly on market, and realized three, year three eights on all of them. So I think that that last point I would end with is what makes this community so special. It's right out there in the open. I just picked Madison and Rochester, Minnesota. If I were you, I'd be curious why. And start poking around and, and, and be willing to ask those questions. What if I don't have it figured out? Love it. Thank you so much. That was awesome.